good to see you this morning. Glad that you're here. Uh, if you were here with us last week, it was really good to have Michael DeMarco back with us uh, for a week. And it was super kind and gracious of Cooper Wood to write his sermon for him so that he could focus on visiting with all of us and spending time with us. I tried to recruit Cooper uh, to do this every week for me, but he said that he wasn't up for that just yet. Uh, so I said we'd do it once a month. Um, but we are jumping back into the book of Acts today. And Lord willing, and obviously this is somewhat beyond my control. I know that I'm supposed to be the one making the plans, but I'm not always the one making the plans. Lord willing, we're going straight from here to the end of Acts. Um, and so the next six or eight weeks, we're going to wrap up the book. Um, and that may mean that we move at a pretty fast pace a few weeks. But today we're in Acts 18, and we're going to go through the first seven verses of chapter 19. And part of the reason that I tagged those seven verses on is because there's a, an issue, a topic that arises out of those seven verses that is often really confusing for people, and there's a lot of curiosity about it, there's a lot of discussion about it, there's a lot of different opinions about what it means and, and how it should affect us day in, day out in our Christian life. Um, and so I wanted to go ahead and dive into that today. I'm going to read this whole section, and I'm going to dive into like the hard, confusing part at first. And look, I don't 100% know that I'm interpreting this exactly the right way. You need to study the scripture yourself, right? Be like the, the church in Berea and, and dive in for yourself. And, and I'm going to give you several different references in the book of Acts. There's a lot of other places we could go outside of Acts that you could continue looking at this issue if you wanted to. But I'm going to offer my thoughts. And my, my goal is to kind of get that out of the way so that it's not distracting in a way that we miss the main points of the text today. So I'm going to do that first. And then I'm going to ask you, out of all of 18 in these first seven verses of 19, what stands out to you? What truths about God? Who God is? How he's showing himself? How he works? His nature? His character? And let you all share for a few minutes the things that God's saying to you this morning for us to share with the church um, and for us to see more of who God is. And then I'll wrap us up on the back end with a few more thoughts that I've seen this week. So again, a little bit different than, than some of our weeks, but that's where we're headed. And if you'll pray with me right now, let's ask God to teach by his spirit as only he can as we jump in. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time right now. Thank you for your grace and your kindness and your goodness that you come to us and you meet with us by your spirit. That you don't leave us alone far from you and that you don't leave us wondering who you are. You don't leave us without truth and without answers, but that you speak through your word by your spirit and you reveal yourself to us and you open yourself up and you let us know you. And Father, I ask that you will do that right now because of Jesus, because of his life, death, and resurrection, because he has torn the veil and opened the way that we can come into your presence and we can know you. Father, I ask that you will teach by your spirit from your word as only you can. Open us up to the truth of your word. Open the truth of your word up to us so that we will see you and know you and trust you and love you and follow you and worship you. Father, do the spiritual work in our hearts and in our lives, and in this church that only you can do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, Acts 18, starting with the first verse, going through the first seven verses of 19. 
be listening for what this teaches us about God, and I will spend a few minutes there in chapter 19 first. But after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea, he had his hair cut. He had had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? 
And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come, to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. All right, we'll stop there in terms of the the story of Acts for this morning. And and these last seven verses here is what I was talking about. I just want to go ahead and dive straight into them, talk about them for a few minutes, and then any truths you're seeing about God in the whole section we can. There's one thing that I mentioned early on when we started into Acts about one of the, uh, the most difficult parts of interpreting Acts, one of the things that we have to try to discern over and over and over as we're walking through the book, and we're usually really dependent on context to help us discern it. And it was the difference between these are the two words I used. Is this descriptive? In other words, this book is a historical account of what happened in the early church how Jesus first started the church, how, it, how he built it, how it grew, how it spread you know, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so this is a, a historical narrative account. And so sometimes we run into stuff, and, and Luke, the author here, who's inspired by the Holy Spirit, is just describing for us what happened. That's what I mean by descriptive. Like he's telling us something happened. But then the other thing that we have in the Bible, because the Bible comes from God to us, and and it is God revealing who he is, but it's also him telling us, because this is who I am, and you're my people, here's what this means for you. Here's how you should live as my people. Here's what it looks like when my spirit comes to live in you, and he's changing your heart and changing your life. And so it's also prescriptive that God is prescribing how we should live, telling us what we should do as his people, telling us he's not just describing what the early church looked like, he's telling us what his church should look like. And so the problem is, any part that we come to asking, is this just descriptive? Is this prescriptive? Is it both? Um, Because you can think quickly through the narratives in the Bible. Joseph's brothers you know, Joseph's a, a spoiled, rotten brat who's the favorite of his son, and he rubs it into his brothers, and he's always tattling on them, and he's having these dreams, and he comes arrogantly, and he's like, hey, I dreamed that I'm ruling over all of you. Bad family dynamics. Joseph's brothers get really jealous, really bitter, really angry. They, first of all, they're, they're thinking about killing him. They decide not to kill him, throw him in the bottom of a well, see some slave traders, sell him to slaves, take his beautiful robe that his dad had made for him, dip it in animal's blood, go back and lie to their dad and tell their dad that he's dead. You read all that in the Bible. Is any of that behavior that you should follow? That section's not prescriptive, right? Do you see what I mean? Like it's describing what happened, but it's not automatically prescribing this is what we should do. And the way we know it, you read the rest of Genesis and you get to the end of the book and the brothers are all torn up about what they've done to Joseph, not really because they seem very sorry, but because Joseph really is in charge now in Egypt. All those dreams that God gave him came true and they're afraid that Joseph's going to use his power to pay them back. So, but they know they've done something wrong. They wouldn't tell you to do that to your brother because you may end up that your brother's ruling over you and you're dependent on him for food and you're worried that he's going to throw you in prison or do something worse to you. And even more, when they talk about it, Joseph says to them, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. 
You know, the Bible really makes it really clear that what they were doing was evil, but that God is working around and inside and under and in front of and behind everything they were doing and working it into a greater plan that he had and redeeming all the sin and the evil inside that family and using it to fulfill his promises. And so out of that then, there are things that are prescriptive for us in the way that we should trust God in the way that we look to God for redemption and restoration, in the way that we forgive one another. Joseph really does forgive his brothers, and that describes to us what happened. Right? He did forgive his brothers. He does feed his family. He lets them come and live in Egypt. He, he restores a relationship with them. All that's prescriptive for us because he ties it to, hey, here's the reason why I can forgive you, because I see what God did. My eyes aren't on you. My eyes are on God and on who he is. And I see how he's worked and how he's redeemed it all. And I trust him so much that I don't have to be bitter and angry and vengeful towards you. And I'm free to forgive you because of who God is. And so it does describe what happens, but it also prescribes what should be happening in our hearts when we see who God is. So all that to say, in Acts, over and over and over, the church gets a lot of things right. They're trusting Jesus and following Jesus and making Jesus known. And there's a lot of times when we read what goes on in the early church and say, hey, this is a prescription of what Jesus wants for his church. There's other times that the church gets it wrong. You know, especially early on, those first few chapters, when we were seeing the, the racism that was still within the church where the Jews didn't want to talk to anybody who was a non-Jew. And then when they finally do start talking to non-Jews, their insistence is, hey, you've got to become a Jew to follow Jesus. Like both, the racism of the early church is wrong. And also then this insistence that you need the Jewish law to be saved is wrong. And we see them have to hash that out really through the first 15 chapters of this book. It's not till we get to chapter 15 that the church makes a final definitive statement of no, Jesus and Jesus alone is enough. It's not the Jewish law. It's not, it's not, things, it's not Jewish heritage. None of that matters. It is Jesus and his work for all people. And anyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. And so that, that's the mixture I'm talking about. So we come to this passage here today, and we get this weird story of people who have come to some level of faith, and they say, hey, we've received John's baptism, but they haven't been what people call as baptized by the Holy Spirit. They haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. And so a lot of people read this story, and they come to a place where they interpret it, and they say, okay, so there's an initial faith experience where you're saved. You put your faith in Jesus, and you're saved, but later on, you need a second experience, a second baptism of the Spirit that takes you to what they would say is a, a more full Christian experience, that you receive the power of the Spirit and a baptism of the Spirit in a way that, that completes your salvation experience. That's teaching that you would hear in a lot of Christian circles. And I'm just going to say that I don't think that's what's going on in this passage. Maybe it is, and maybe I'm wrong about this, all right? We'll talk about why it'd be okay to be a little bit wrong in either direction in a few minutes. But I think if we look closely through the book of Acts, that there's another explanation of what's going on that Luke is describing for us a very unique situation. Here's one of the places where the description of what goes on doesn't overlap with prescription, and that's this. In the book of Acts, the church is being born for the very first time. How many more times in history is the church born for the very first time? None, right? Like, that's not repeatable. And there are some things that happen initially when the church comes, is born and comes to life and Jesus is building his church that may be unique to that situation. Now, there's still truths and principles that we can pull out, but we aren't in this exact same historical context, so some of the historical details may not be repeated later. I think this is one of them. There's a transition taking place here that isn't taking place anymore. And so, 
Step out of Acts 19 with me for just a minute. If you want to flip places, you can, but these are going to be on the screens. Um, when we start in Acts 1.8, this is Jesus setting the tone for the entire book. Like right at the very beginning, Jesus gives, if you want to call it like the thesis of Acts, you want to call it the big idea, the main idea of Acts, Jesus is talking right before he goes up into heaven. He says, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He's going to send his spirit on his followers. And here's what's going to happen. The power from the spirit is going to lead to this. You will be my witnesses. So he's giving them the Holy Spirit and the power of the spirit for a very specific purpose that they will make him known, that they will declare who he is and what he's done, that they will call other people to faith in Jesus. And then he outlines, like not just random places, but the actual flow, the historical flow that the gospel takes from this moment on. In Jerusalem and in all Judea, which that would be with the Jews, right? Jerusalem and Judea in the Jews, Samaria... Samaria is the northern half of Israel. If you know the Old Testament story, they had a civil war after just a couple of kings had ruled and the country was split in two. Samaria is the north. Jerusalem, Judea is the south. They never were reunited in the whole Old Testament and they hated each other. Like, cross borders here, you know, Tennessee fans, you just think that you hate Alabama fans. Right? All you southerners, you just think that you hate Yankees. Right? It's nothing like this. And then what happened is the Jews in the south, they stayed pretty much pure-blooded. Like they married other Jews. You know, they believed this was still that, that racist mindset of, hey, we're the only people who can ever be the people of God. We're the true, pure people of God. And so they didn't marry Gentiles. The Samaritans, who were the Jews in the north, intermarried with Gentiles. And so then the Jews despised them even more as half-breeds. You know, we're the pure-blooded people of God. Here are the half-bred people of God. And right off the bat, Jesus is saying, by the way, I came for them. <laughs> the people you hate the most, your worst enemies, the people that you've been in a civil war with for nearly a thousand years, the half-breds that you think aren't nearly as good as you and aren't nearly as holy as you, nearly as pure as you, I came for them and I'm sending you to them. So that's Samaria. And then, if that's not enough, to the ends of the earth. So we go from the pure bread to the half bread to the no bread, right? <laughs> They've got no Jewish heritage. They're not the people of God at all. And Jesus says, I came for them, and I'm sending you to them. And so, you know, I was thinking about this. I know I talked about Harry Potter a couple weeks ago. And so this is, you know, your, your pure bloods, your half bloods, and your mud bloods, right? If you're a Harry Potter fan. The, the, the pure-blooded wizards, then the half-blooded wizards, and the ones that are wizard with no wizard. That's what you've got right here. And Jesus is saying, pure-blooded Jews, I'm here for you, and the gospel's for you. Half-blooded Jews, I'm here for you, and the gospel's for you. And those of you that aren't Jews at all, which is the entire rest of the world, which is most of us sitting right here, he's like, I'm here for you, and the gospel's for you. And this is how it's going to happen. I will send the Holy Spirit, and I'll give you power for this very reason. To reach every people group, like everybody's one of these three things, right? You're either a pure-blooded Jew, you're a half-blooded Jew, or you're not a Jew at all. And he's like, and I'm here for all of them. So this is Jesus telling us what's going to happen in the whole book. I know we don't think of it that way, but he is telling us up front, this is where the book of Acts is headed. Now watch what happens. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, meaning these first believers in Jesus, about 120 of them, were all together in one place, 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's that promise that Jesus made. Chapter 1, he makes the promise. Chapter 2, it comes true. He sends the Spirit with his power. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, look at why the Spirit empowers them to speak in these other tongues. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews. So here's the place he said, and here's that first group of people that he said. Devout men and women from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So you've got all these different people groups. We counted them back in Acts chapter 2. It was like 15 different groups speaking 15 different languages. No way for them to understand what Peter and John and the other apostles are saying. That it doesn't matter whether they speak in Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek. Like whatever language they speak, most of the people speak something else. And so Jesus, by his spirit, works an initial miracle here where it's like human power, human communication isn't building this church. When they stand up and speak, when Peter opens his mouth, the spirit does a work of interpretation where everyone who's hearing hears in his own language. And so it would be like if I were to... Lou stood up here a few weeks ago and started his introduction in Spanish, if you were here with us. If he had done that, and he was really speaking Spanish, but you heard in English, that's what was going on that day, if English is your native tongue. But for 15 different groups at once, all these, the Spirit is doing a supernatural work to jumpstart the church. This birth of the church, this isn't repeatable either, right? The church isn't ever born again. Now, might the Spirit interpret and overcome language barriers for us when we're going to unreached people? Absolutely. There's, a, there's something going on here that we say the Spirit's not limited to only do this once, but we will say that in the whole book of Acts, this is the only time this happens. It's a very significant event, and I think it is Jesus communicating from the very beginning, I'm the one who will build my church. <laughs> Not Peter, not John, not these apostles, not these early believers. I have to do things that you can't do, and I will. I will do that. Before you even knew you needed this, I promised I would give it to you. The power of the Spirit to be my witnesses. And here's the power of the Spirit to be his witnesses, to testify to all these people. So they're speaking in tongues, and here we go. Jerusalem and Judea. The first thing he promised in Acts 1, being reached with the gospel right now. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So there's the first part of Acts 1.8. Now, the gospel stays in Jerusalem for the next six chapters till we get to chapter 8. That's when Stephen preaches to the Sanhedrin. They throw rocks at him until he's dead. And then this persecution breaks out against the church that drives them out of Jerusalem and really destroys the church in Jerusalem for the first time. But now God's getting them outside of Jerusalem, which is where Jesus told them to go all along. Eventually, they end up with the Samaritans. So Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Here's where we are in Acts 8 now. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria... There's your next place, I'll circle it. Had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now this is one of those spots where people say, okay, here's an initial faith in Jesus and baptism. Here's a subsequent receiving of the Spirit. And it is right there. We're not trying to dodge that, deny that, anything like that. 
Here's what I think is going on contextually. And again, you spend as much time as you want reading this stuff, studying this stuff. How did the Jews feel about the Samaritans? Hate them. Dirty half-breeds, right? God's doing something here where he's saying, I'm going to send Peter and John, and I'm going to give clear evidence that I have accepted the Samaritans in the exact same way I accepted the Jews. I'm giving them my spirit, and I'm giving signs and wonders, external evidence of my spirit, the exact same. When the, when the gospel started with the Jews in chapter 2, here's what it looked like when I sent my spirit. When the gospel starts with the Samaritans in chapter 8, it looks the exact same way. And I'm going to make sure that my leaders of the early church, Peter and John, are there to witness it so they can go back to the Jews and be like, yes, Really, God accepts the Samaritans. I know you don't, but you're going to have to get over that because God does. Like Jesus told you this is what he was doing, and now it's what he was doing, so you're going to have to get over your religious traditions and your self-righteousness and your high view of yourself and thinking that you're more important to God than anybody else's, and you're going to have to be humbled and accept the fact that he came for all sinners just like he came for you. So that's what's going on. And then here's why I really think that's what's going on with Samaria. Because then in Acts chapter 10, now we finally get outside of Jews and half-Jews to Gentiles in general. And God goes a long way to make this happen. You know, he gives Peter that vision three times in a row of the sheep being laid down. It's like once isn't enough, twice isn't enough. I'm going to show you three times in a row. And he sends the angel to Cornelius. And then he, sends, he has the angel speak to, to Peter and say, don't be afraid to go with these people. So this is what happens when Peter goes, for the very first time, the early church is visiting Gentiles. For the very first time, they're, they're doing what Jesus said from chapter 1. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. It didn't matter. Jew, Gentile, Samaritan. And the believers from among the circumcised, which that's just the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. That God is doing the exact same thing for the Gentiles that he did for the half-Jews, that he did for the pure Jews. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And so the first thing to see here is that God really does this external expression of them receiving the Spirit so that the Jews will see it and be convinced that God's really doing it. That this really is the work of God. He really is accepting Gentiles. And if he accepts Gentiles, we've got to accept Gentiles. The other thing to notice is there's a little bit of a difference here between Samaria and the Gentiles. In Samaria, Peter and John and the apostles aren't there initially to see what happens. And so there's a delay, Right? He doesn't send the Spirit till they're there to witness it and testify to it. Well, here, Peter's the one preaching. The Spirit comes immediately. This is, like, this is the exact opposite of a second experience of the Spirit. This is one of the reasons why I would say that Acts isn't prescribing that because Acts doesn't consistently describe that. Do you see that right here? In Samaria, they believe and they're baptized. Peter and John show up, and then the Spirit comes. With the Gentiles, Peter speaks, and the Spirit comes first. And then he's like, hey, they've already been saved. we got to baptize them. So the coming of the Spirit isn't a second subsequent experience here. And I would just say that if it doesn't happen the same way all the time in the Bible, God's not telling us this is the way you've got to do it all the time. Is that fair enough? And listen, if you've got questions about that or what, 
email me this week, talk to me afterwards, whatever. Because I know like, a lot of people say a lot of different things about this. Now that brings us back to today. What's going on here? Uh, if I can get back up to it. There we go. Acts 19. He found some disciples. Paul finds some disciples. So they've been taught. They've been taught something about Jesus, something about the gospel. He asked them a question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They say, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he's, he's not thinking, well, that's normal, right? You should believe first and get the Holy Spirit later. Paul's confused. He said, well, then into what were you baptized? And this is the real key here. They say into John's baptism. Now, John this meaning who we usually call John the Baptist, who came before Jesus, was baptizing people in the Jordan River. This baptism of repentance where he said, hey, the king's about to come. You better get your hearts ready. You better repent and be ready for the king who's coming. This was prior to Jesus coming, prior to Jesus' death on the cross, prior to Jesus' resurrection, prior to Jesus sitting in the Spirit. It's what all those believers, the 120 that we were looking at in Acts 1 and Acts 2, it's what they experienced before the Spirit came in Acts 2. But they had a transition from, hey, we're in the old covenant. We're in the preparation for Jesus coming. We believed then, but now as we transition from old covenant to new covenant, the Spirit comes. You you see what I mean? Well, these people are experienced. This isn't a second experience of the Spirit. This is their first experience. Like They haven't heard of Jesus' baptism yet. Paul says, John was just pointing you forward to the one who was to come. He was pointing you forward to Jesus. And now Jesus has come, and you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Like your baptism is joining with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. And the moment that they put their faith in Jesus with a full understanding of what the gospel really is, and they're baptized in the name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes on them. This is a single experience again, faith and spirit together. And I would say what's going on here is a transition again from they came to faith in the old covenant. They repented under the preaching of John the Baptist. They received John's baptism, but all that was preparation pointing forward to Jesus. And now that Jesus has come, they're transitioning from we're looking forward to Jesus to Jesus is really here and we believe in him. And none of us have that now, right? None of us came to faith in the old covenant before Jesus. That was 2,000 years ago. It's done. Every believer from here on out is after Jesus has come, after his life, death, and resurrection. And so our experience, in a sense, is more united or unified than theirs is because we don't have that transition. And so all that, I would just say this. Here's the important pieces. For you to remember that the work of Jesus is complete. There's a real danger if we approach this teaching the wrong way. Yeah, I put my faith in Jesus. I believed in Jesus. But now there's something else I need in addition to that. And we'll start teaching this kind of tiered Christianity of, oh, yeah, there's people that believe in Jesus. But then there's people that believe in Jesus and have a second experience that, that adds to what Jesus has done for them. The work of Jesus is complete. He's the one who promised to send his spirit. And he sent his spirit. He kept his promise. His spirit is here now, living in his people. So the work of Jesus is complete. And then the other thing I would say is if somebody asked me, do you need two experiences? Like an initial experience of faith in Jesus and then a secondary experience of of being baptized in the spirit. I would say no. But the reason I would say no is not because I would say you only need one experience of that. The reason I would say no is because you need that experience every day for the rest of your life. You, need, you do need the Spirit after you've been saved. 
You need to experience the Spirit today and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday. You need to wake up every day with the type of faith that says, I am a natural sinful person and left to myself, that's what will come out of me. And Jesus is creating a spiritual person. His Spirit lives in me and He produces supernatural fruit. Fruit that comes, grace and love and mercy and kindness and goodness and patience that can only come from Him. And it's only as His Spirit lives in me and lives through me and changes me that I live like that. And so I need to depend on Him every day for that. And so, yeah, do you need a second experience of the Spirit? Yes, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and a sixth, and a 4,988th. All right? And I do too. If you only have two, you're stopping way short. And I'm really not making a joke about that. That that faith in Jesus is ongoing, lifelong dependence on Jesus. It's waking up tomorrow and realizing just a little bit more how desperate I am without him. And how much I need him. And how good he is to give me everything I need when I trust him. And for him to live his life through me. And so I think that it is... There's a danger, if we interpret this the wrong way, that will imply that the work of Jesus isn't complete. And then there's a danger that will miss this thought of continual dependence on Jesus. Now, all that being said, if you come to this, if you come from a faith background where you really believe this second experience is significant, I would say in the book of Acts, you do see multiple times where they're filled with the Spirit in a special and unique way, where he gives them a special boldness and a special power to make Jesus known. And you may have that experience. You may have multiple of that experience throughout your life. And I'm not minimizing that. I'm not discounting that. I'm not even telling you not to ask for that or seek that or want that. If the Spirit comes on you in power to make Jesus known, we celebrate that. Like This is not a battle that I want to fight. But what I'm saying is don't limit it to that. Don't act like the work of Jesus isn't complete unless this also happens. And don't forget that you don't just need this supernatural experience or that one, this mountaintop high or this emotional fervor or whatever it is. But realize you need continual dependence on Jesus all the time. High, low, in between, normal days, bad days, good days. You need Jesus. And if If you have this second experience of the the Spirit and it prompts you to believe more than ever that the work of Jesus is complete and it prompts you to continual dependence on Jesus, great. You and I will disagree just a little bit on this interpretation and we'll agree on the main truths and we'll just keep walking forward saying the gospel's true and Jesus is enough and we're good with that. All right? Is that, like I, I just, I knew this had the potential to get, and maybe it wouldn't have. Like maybe it wouldn't have gotten in the way at all, but I just wanted to address it first. Now, you want to talk more about that? We can. But I'd like to back up now. All 18 into the first seven verses of 19, what are some truths about God that you see? You take 10 minutes here, and then I'll wrap us up. God is consistent. What made you say that today? I mean, absolutely, it's true. I just want to mark it. Ah. Uh, yeah, that over and over, it doesn't matter if he's with the Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, and it doesn't matter who's teaching, right? Paul, Apollos, Priscilla, Aquila, that it, it's the same truth and the same gospel for everybody. That, that when God sent Jesus, that yes, Jesus comes from the Jews, 
Like he's, he's a descendant of Jewish parents and a descendant of Jewish King David. All, and he fulfills all these promises that God made to the Jews. But also don't forget that in Matthew's gospel, that's where Matthew, writing to the Jews, takes Jesus back to Abraham. He's like, hey, he's a descendant of the Jews. He came for the Jews. Then in Luke's gospel, Luke does take him back to Abraham, and then Luke doesn't stop. He goes all the way back to Adam. He's like, Jesus is also a descendant of Adam. And you know who's a descendant of Adam? <laughs> Everybody. This one Savior for all people. This one gospel for all people. Whatever your background, whatever your story, whatever your sins, whatever your need, Jesus is here for you. And it is, it's the same message for everybody in that sense. We all have the same problem in the depths of our heart. We all have the same need. And God has the same answer. And he is consistent over and over and over that it's Jesus and Jesus alone. What else? What other truths about God? Yes, God is not prejudiced. And the way that, the way that um, Peter said it back in Acts 10, when, he, when God sent Peter to Cornelius, was, he said, I finally realized God does not show favoritism. Like based on race, nationality, cultural experiences, even based on religious traditions and religious background. Like the Jews had a lot of things from God religiously that the Gentiles didn't have. And yet God offers the same grace to them, the same forgiveness, the same gospel, the same Savior. That there is no favoritism, no prejudice, no racism in the mind and heart of God that everyone's his people. Right? This is his creation, all of it. And the love that is within him that's not prompted by us or who we are but just flows out of who he is. He loves his people and he desires for all people everywhere to come to repentance. This is the way that Paul writes it in one of his later letters. I think it's Paul. But that is that these things, your heritage, your socioeconomic status, your gender, your race, none of that qualifies you for God's grace because it is grace. It's free, it's undeserved, it's unmerited, it flows out of who he is. And that means that it's not dependent on anything about you and nothing about you disqualifies you from receiving it. No favoritism at all. No prejudice at all. And one of the things that we would hope as application for us is that the more and more that the grace of God really infuses us and his spirit lives in us, that this is who we will be. That the church would be a place for people who look really, really different to the world. And I don't, I mean physically, but I don't just mean physically. I mean, it could be all sorts of things. Socioeconomic status. It could be nationality, background. It could be political views. Sports teams, right? Dress, personality, all these external differences. That the church is a place where we come together and we're one in Jesus. And that what unites us in Jesus is greater than all the differences that we have. That, that if it were possible that, that you or I, and I'll use me so I think of somebody really, really different. That I want you to imagine right now, I'm from the United States, American. So imagine a Russian. I'm a male. Imagine a woman, a Russian woman. I'm middle class, upper middle class. Imagine that, that she's in the depths of poverty right now with everything going on in her country. I've been raised in our political system, our economic system. She's in a communist system. Imagine all that. And then she's a believer in Jesus, and I'm a believer in Jesus. 
I have more in common with that poor Russian woman than I do with another middle-aged, middle-class, Caucasian American male who's born and raised in this state if he's not a believer in Jesus. Do we really believe that, though? Like what, what categories do we draw? What do we think? This is what these things define me, and people who are like this are like me. Or is it, no, here's what defines me Jesus and Jesus alone. His gospel, the work of His Spirit, the fact that He lives in me and He's given me a new identity. He's made me a son of God, a child of God, an heir of God. And anyone in the world, you describe them any way you want, who also believes in Him is part of that same family. And has that same identity and that same inheritance. And so there's no, there's no room, none, for prejudice and racism and favoritism in the church of God. Not if we believe the gospel. What else? What else then? Another truth about God. God is a promise keeper. Are you thinking about the coming of the Spirit here? Or do you have something else in mind? I don't want to just assume on you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so so Jesus appears to Paul one night, you know, the Lord said to Paul in a vision, "Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, do not be silent, for I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people many in this city who are my people. And you think about what Paul's experience has been recently, right? Three weeks in Thessalonica, ran out of town. A few weeks in Berea, and the Jews from Thessalonica come and run him out of town. A little bit of time in Athens till he has to leave. So, and it's not like, as we read chapter 18 here, it's not like he faces any less opposition. The Jews are opposed to him. The Jews drag him into court. I guess the exact same opposition in Corinth that it was in Thessalonica. The only difference is God said, Hey, I want you to stay for a while. So I'm going to make sure you stay. <laughs> Paul doesn't do anything different. The Jews don't respond any differently. The circumstances aren't any different. But the deal is, they can't run Paul out of town when God has said you're not going to get run out of town. This thing depends on God. It doesn't depend on Paul. It doesn't depend on the opposition. And so God makes this promise. He's like, you are going to face opposition again. But don't be afraid. When, do, when does God have to tell you not to be afraid? It's when stuff's going on that would be frightening, right? You don't ever walk up to somebody who's like staring at a rainbow and picking roses and be like, don't be afraid right now. Right? Now when the storm comes before the rainbow, you may go into your kid, hey, don't be afraid, it's okay. We're in our house, we're safe, it'll be over in a little while. But the don't be afraid is, I know, I know they're responding to you. I mean, he's already... He's already had... The Jews, when they opposed and reviled him, fiercely enough that he says, your blood be on your own heads. <laughs> like, I have told you who Jesus is. I've told you the gospel. I'm going to go talk to the Gentiles about it. Because Jesus said, go to the ends of the earth. Like, he's already got this level of opposition from the Jews. And Jesus shows up and says, don't be afraid. Keep talking in this city. I'm going to keep you here. I won't let them run you out of town. I'm not going to let them stop you. So keep talking. And then he keeps that promise. We get down here, and this is what Jake was talking about there. And he stayed a year and six months. That may be the longest we've seen him stay anywhere yet on any of these missionary trips so far. And it's not that he didn't want to stay that long. 
He just never could. <laughs> he, he was so explicit about Jesus and his gospel, and these religious people were so angered by the truth of who Jesus is, and they kept running him out of town. But this time God says, I'm not going to let them run you out of town. And they don't run him out of town. I mean, in some ways it's that simple. God said it, and so it's done. God is a promise keeper. And when God decides he's going to build his church a certain way, nothing and no one can stop him. One more that you want to share? What made you say that? God goes before us and is always at work, and we're just joining him in his work. What made you think about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, this, is, you know, this is Jesus talking here. I have many in this city who are my people. It's like Jesus saying, hey, I've already done it. Now I just need you to show up and tell them I've already done it. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make sure you can stay and tell them because I'm going to do it. <laughs> like the whole thing. But he's like, yeah, I came before you and I'm already at work. And I'm, I'm letting you catch up to my work. And then when you show up, don't think, don't think that, yeah, I did this and now you're going to do this. I'm going to be the one who keeps you here, who protects you, who lets you speak to these people. And then I'll use what you say to claim those who are mine, to draw them to myself. Like, it is the work of Jesus start to finish. God going before us, always at work. Before we see it, before we're there, once we get there and it doesn't look real good. I mean, the initial thing for Paul, again, it doesn't look good. Right? The Jews reject him. He's leaving, like, because humanly thinking, who's, who do we think is most likely to get it and respond? We think it's religious people, like the, the good people who know what God said and follow the rules. Like, we always elevate that. <laughs> Every single time, the good people who heard what God said and follow the rules are the ones that reject Paul, reject the gospel, don't believe in Jesus. Probably because they think, I don't need Jesus. I'm doing what God said. I'm good. The self-righteousness. The rule-keeping, the empty religion is such a barrier that they're opposing Jesus and his gospel. So it's not a good start again. And then Jesus shows up and he's like, don't worry about what it looks like. Don't worry about the rejection. Don't worry about the opposition. I am at work. You don't see it yet, but I'm already at work and I'm going to use you here and I'll keep you here and I will make it happen. And the one thing he tells him, you just go on speaking. You just, you just go on speaking. Keep saying the same thing. You say, Jesus, 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 Jesus alone. Don't you dare change your message just because they haven't responded. Don't you dare say something different just because they don't like what you've said. Go on speaking and don't you be quiet. <laughs> don't stop talking just because they're mad at you. <laughs> say it again. Yeah, one more. Tell us why you're saying that. Because when we see Apollos, uh, when we see Apollos when he begins his ministry in 24, you know, he's, he's, he's well-versed, he's, well, uh, he's very eloquent, and, um, you know, it's, it's basically derived on him. Yeah. It's on what he can do, not what God's doing. Yeah, so Apollos, and I spent a lot of time thinking about Apollos this week. Eric said humanity's method of teaching is built on humanity. We've got this guy down here who's really eloquent, 
Like he's a really good speaker, but he doesn't yet have a full understanding of the truth about who God is. Like this is why I really feel like what we're doing every week here and what I'm asking you to do in your own time and with other people, why it's so crucial. Because Apollos is doing some good things, but they're incomplete. And he's got this really good gift, but until Priscilla and Aquila come and they very gently and humbly, they take him aside, they don't do it publicly, they don't humiliate him, but they're like, hey, here, there's still some things about Jesus you need to know. That there's, a more, there's a fullness to your understanding of who Jesus is and what his gospel is and how he really changes his people that, that you need. And, and Paul doesn't give us all the details of what he was getting right and wrong and what they had to teach him, but I just want you to see once again that, that human giftedness eloquence, charisma, is not enough. That it is Jesus and his gospel that is necessary and sufficient and crucial. That you can have all the human stuff in the world and it can look great and people can hear it and like it and respond. And if it's not Jesus and his gospel, it's not enough. And then also I want you to see the importance here again of us having both multiple teachers and an entire body where we're asking God to speak to us and speak through us because none of us gets it all right. Like Acts speaks highly of Apollos. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks really highly of Apollos. In fact, Apollos does such a great job at Corinth that they've got this battle now of, I like Apollos better than Paul. I like Paul better than Apollos. And it's what you find all the time in churches that are built on personalities. I mean, it's not a new thing. <laughs> it's 2,000 years old. But it, it, they speak really highly of Apollos. And he's, he's committed to what's going on. He's dedicated to Jesus. He's trying to faithfully teach. But he doesn't get it all right. And he needs other people in his life to see his blind spots. And to be loving and gracious and truthful with him. And we all need that. All of It's why we have to be in community. It's why, it's why we need you in community groups. It's why we need you to have, like, not just to sit in this room once a week where, in a sense, yeah, we can all come together, but we can also all hide what's really going on in our life and our heart, but to have some people in your life, some other believers that you're really sharing your life with. And they can hear the things you're thinking. They can hear how you're applying this truth to your daily life. And they go, hey, you're missing that right now. You've, got, you've gotten sucked up into that circumstance, and that circumstance is bigger to you than God is right now. Let's remember who God is. Let's remember the gospel. Like your shame or your guilt or your regret right now, it's louder in your head than the gospel of Jesus is. And so let me remind you again. Let me, let me give you a full and complete view of who Jesus is and what he's done. And we need that over and over and over all the time. And we, we get a good just picture of it right here. Even like great leaders and teachers in the church need other people speaking into their lives and pointing them back to Jesus all the time. All right. Those are great. Um, a few other things I wanted to point out in our last 10 or 15 minutes here. This first one right here. So Paul's working as a tent maker when he's first, uh, wherever we are, Corinth. <laughs> when he's first in Corinth. And then it says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. And some translations say that, that he was speaking the word full time now. And I want you to just to realize why. Macedonia is where Philippi is. So the letter to the Philippians. And this is what Paul says to the Philippians right here. Chapter 4, he says, It was good of you to share in my troubles. 
Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. You sent me aid again and again when I was in need. And so here's what's going on. Paul shows up in Corinth. He's got to work to support himself. But the Philippians, who, it was just chapter 16, it was two chapters earlier when he was in Philippi, they believe the gospel so much now. They value Jesus and his gospel so much now that they say, here, Silas, Timothy, take our money with you. Give it to Paul so that when you get there, Paul doesn't have to work anymore and he can spend all his time telling people about Jesus. This is not about them financially supporting Paul. This is about them financially investing in the gospel of Jesus. They're saying that the gospel is worth being declared full-time, and we don't want Paul to spend half of his time working on tents and half of his time telling people about Jesus. We'll just give him the money that he would have made from the tents, and then he can tell people about Jesus all the time. And, and the reason I point this out is, first of all, I just want to say that it's easy for us Maybe it's always easy for us, but especially I feel like in just the Western church and North American church where we have so much stuff and facilities and things like that, it's easy for us to give to like the vision, the dream. It's easy for us to give to build a building or give to run programs and, and like to even use that to motivate each other. Well, if you give this, here's what we'll do. And I just want to say this. Give because Jesus is worth it. And this, give because the gospel is that valuable. That's what Paul says to the Philippians. You became partners with me in the gospel. You weren't given to me, you were given to the gospel. And it worries me sometimes that we motivate ourselves with all this other stuff like we get people to, whether it's give to this facility or give to this program or, or here's the guilt trip or here's the pressure or, or here's the fear of if you don't give, here's what's going to, like we use all those things to motivate us because our hearts aren't really motivated by Jesus and his gospel yet. And, and I don't want us as a church, and I, I certainly don't want to lead you as one of your teaching pastors and elders, I don't want to lead you to give in a way that's damaging for your soul that you love this kind of stuff more than you love Jesus. If we're not there yet, you need to see more of who Jesus is. You need to be impacted by the gospel more. You need your life to be so changed by the gospel that you love the gospel more. And that's why. You're just like, yeah, I, I, want, I want to give to that. Because it's worth it. He's worth it. It's the best thing I can do. So here... It's Acts 4 where it says great grace was upon them all. And so from time to time they're going off and selling a piece of land that they own and bringing the whole thing and just putting it at the apostles' feet. And they're like, Jesus is worth more than my land. The church making the gospel known. The church loving people the way that Jesus loves the people. Like what Jesus is doing in his church, the name of Jesus, it's worth more than my stuff, my resources, my land, my money. So here, let me invest. Let me invest. So we see that here, and I want to encourage you. Like One of the ways that God has allowed us, open the door for us to do the church right now, is through Faith and Miguel. You know, our, our missionary partners, I introduced them to you last May. 
Um, just last night, like I was getting in bed, and I got a text from Miguel, and we'd given them a few thousand dollars right before Christmas to buy Bibles for kids that didn't have Bibles. And you, know, and you remember that if you've heard their story, they were transitioning from this exact tent making. They had been working jobs to make money for themselves and then doing mission work on the side. They transitioned this past year to we want to do full-time mission work, but the only way we can do it is that people give. And so we've been given to that. And I've asked you to give and continue to give to support them. And so far for a year now, they've been able to do full-time mission work. And the ministry's growing. And I want to, these, these are the pictures that he sent me. If, just put them up on the screen. This is Miguel up here. And he's, these are 24 girls on one of those soccer teams. And he's teaching them right here for the very first time. This was this weekend. This method of Bible study that we're doing right now. Now, it's not text because it's Spanish and not English, and the thing doesn't translate. But it is, let's pray together. What's this teach us about God? What's God saying to your heart right now? And so every one of these girls, if you can see, there's her Bible. But every one of the Bibles you see on this table, you bought for them. This is what you gave. Our children did that art show. And I just want you to see, like, this is, these are real people hearing the gospel for the very first time and having their own Bible for the very first time. And it's, it's us trying to say, this is worth it. This is worth it. We will give so that Miguel and Faith can do this full time because the gospel's worth being done full time. Um, this is, so those are the girls. Here's some of the boys. Uh, there's a group of five. Some of these guys have been on their soccer teams and now they're training them to be coaches and to lead this Bible study method with the younger teams. Like it's an awesome picture of discipleship and making disciples and reproduction. Uh, and then each of those guys individually, if you want to see them, holding their first time they've had their own Bible. They're, they're only giving Bibles to people who don't have one, just so you know. So every one of these pictures you're seeing is a kid that's never had a Bible before. And this is, this is Acts 18.5 and Philippians 4. And... I just, this is who I want us to be as a church. Like, this is worth doing, worth giving to. Um, the second thing that stood out to me down here in 1822, Paul comes back to Antioch. Remember, this has been his home base. He left there on the first missionary journey, came back afterwards, left there on the second missionary journey. Now he's come back again, spends some time there. And then, when he leaves for the beginning of his third missionary journey, this is the transition here from 22 to 23, he goes back to places he's already been first, and it says, strengthening all the disciples. And I just want to point out right here that from the very beginning in the early church, the focus, even when they went into new regions, wasn't just on getting people to make a decision. It wasn't, well, I've been to Galatia and Phrygia, and a bunch of people raised their hand before I left. We're good, let's go somewhere else. He goes back to disciple them more because Jesus didn't say, get people to make a decision. He said, make disciples. That's the focus. People whose life belongs to Jesus now, who are continually in an ongoing fashion growing in their relationship with Jesus where, yeah, we know Jesus here and we're believing Jesus and here's the things that we've learned and here's how we're following, here's how we're trusting him. But when you come back, now we need to know Jesus here and trust Jesus here and follow him here. And I just want you to see both the ongoing relationships within the church, that it wasn't limited to, hey, we're in this one location and this is the church. When he was at Antioch, he's a part of Antioch. But when he's gone, he's still part of Antioch and he's coming back and those relationships are still there because it's about Jesus and the gospel, not about a location and a, and a weekly schedule. 
So the relationship in Antioch is ongoing. And then the relationship with these churches that he started, it's how can I come back and pour into you spiritually? How can I help you grow? How can I disciple you and you grow as a disciple? And again, that's what we're like for us to have those relationships. It has to be, it has to be more than just this room on Sunday mornings. This is your everyday life, sharing your life with people, being joined. Like when you're not in the same location, I, I've got people that, that God's allowed me to develop relationships with them through like texting them every day, just, I'm praying for you. How can I pray for you? And when they've got things they want to talk about, hey, can we talk for 10 minutes? And we'll talk through something that they're seeing in the Bible. Like it's not limited to here. It's your whole life and it's the whole world. And I just went, because again, these are the kind of verses that we just blow by and we don't realize. This is describing the fabric and the essence of the early church, the type of relationships that define them, and the ongoing discipleship. We talked about Apollos, so I'm going to skip that. Well, good. That brings me back up to this, that Eric, were you the one that mentioned And Jake mentioned it first. I thought a lot about this one today. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I'm with you. And I just wanted to give you this word of encouragement from Jesus right here. I'm with you. But things aren't going well, right? The Jews are opposing Paul again. And you think about the track record for Paul. Like he's been run out of town, run out of town, run out of town by the Jews, by the Jews, by the Jews. He shows up and the Jews are all over him again. Like he's probably about to pack his bags. He knows what happens next, right? And Jesus shows up and he says, hey, I'm with you. You don't have to face them alone. Like the reason, don't be afraid, isn't, hey, muster up all your strength and be a good, brave soldier. It's don't be afraid, for I am with you. It's not go on speaking because this is the job I've given you and I expect you to do your job. It's go on speaking, for I'm with you. I'm going to make it matter. I'm doing something. And I just had this thought, like when things don't look good, when you're discouraged, when it's like you just keep getting beat down in Thessalonica and Berea and Athens over and over and over, and now you're getting beat down in Corinth, just remember this. We are not alone. You're not alone. You're not going through it alone. You're not facing it alone. Because Jesus made a promise at the very beginning of the book that he will send his spirit, and he kept that promise. And he's with you right now. He's already gone before you, and he's inside you. If you are a follower of Jesus, he is with you all the time. Everything you're going through, we are not alone. So, like because of this, because Jesus is with us, we are not alone. So we will not... Be silent because we are not afraid. That's the connection there. Like, this is the main thought. Jesus said, I'm with you. I'm with, for I am with you. And because I'm with you, keep talking because you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of your circumstances. You don't have to be afraid of the things you're struggling with. You don't have to be afraid of the rejection and the opposition that you're facing. You don't have to be afraid of the things that aren't going the way you want them to. You don't have to be afraid of the things that aren't going as you had planned because Jesus is with you. He's with you. And this really encouraged me today because um, we're, we're wrestling 
with one of these moments here at Friendship. Like we've, we've rolled into our Corinth. <laughs> and and st- not everything's lining up the way that we would want. You know, three and a half months ago, um, I gave you our first financial update from the elders. And I just told you that the way we were tracking that our monthly giving wasn't um, enough, in spite of the fact that you are giving at just an incredible rate based on, hey, here's what the attendance was before the pandemic, and here's what giving was, here's attendance after the pandemic, but giving's still way up here. And I want to continue to thank you for that and thank you the way that you give to Faith and Miguel. And just every time that we've said, here's a need, you've been very generous in responding. And so it's not that, but it's just the reality of where we are right now that our giving isn't tracking with our monthly needs. February was another one of those months. Um, and the, the amount that we drew on reserves, if we do that probably four more times, our reserves are done. Um, and it, I just I want you to know, like we want to make, I, if we get to the end of this process, whatever the end of this process looks like, and you criticize me and the elders for something, I hope it's that they told us a lot more than they needed to. <laughs> like they, they kept talking about that. I don't want you to get to the end of that. Well, they didn't tell us. We didn't know what was going on. They kept that a secret. There's no secrets. You want more details after this is over? Here's Adam. <laughs> Here's Keith. Here I am. <laughs> Come talk to us, all right? There's nothing. I don't want to like, just bog you down with a thousand things in this setting, but I just want you to know, March, the first two weeks of March have tracked the same as the first two weeks of February, so we're probably going to draw on reserves again this month. So, you know, in three to four months, that's what we're looking at. But here's the things we're doing to work on it. And I'm, I'm sharing this with you. Number one, will you pray for these things? Because here's the deal. If God wants Paul to stay in Corinth, nobody runs Paul out of Corinth. If God intends for our expression of this church to be here in this facility looking like it's looking, God can make that happen. Now, we are asking the question, hey, is that what he wants from us? Or is he telling us that he wants it to look differently? There's no question about this. He's calling us to be his church and to make disciples. That's not changing. We are asking, hey, how do we hold everything else with open hands? And you tell us what you want it to look like. So here's some of the things we're working on. So you can pray. And, and you can pray and ask him to show up and show himself in a way where we're like, when we get to the other side of the story, we're like, we know God did that. I mean, that's the main like, that we won't be tempted at all to say, hey, we made this happen. Look, we didn't make this happen. We're at the end of our resources, all right? But we're, we have been working with our original lender, uh, looking at refinancing. Now, one of the things that happened uh, five or six years ago when the church was first looking to purchase, move here, re- renovate this, um, the, the appraisal of this property versus the, the amount we needed to borrow was such that we didn't go with a traditional bank because they want that to be at 80%. So we borrowed a larger percentage than that from Solomon, who's our current lender. Because of that, there's not a lot of flexibility with them on our current interest rate. We've talked, we've had multiple conversations with them about that. Not enough flexibility that would really make up a big change in our budget. Um, but that is conversations that we've had. And we've also, we're looking at, can we refinance? But to refinance, we would need a, an appraisal of this facility to be high enough that, you know, whether it's 70 or 80% that they require that we could borrow that amount and then get our payments down, um, get our rate down, all that sort of stuff. So we're working on all that. If you want to pray for God to work out those numbers, please do. Like, I mean, we, you can ask him. <laughs> like, it's okay to ask him. Um, so there's that piece. We're also looking at renting part of this property and lots of different options, what that may look like. 
if you want to pray about this one, and then also if you have any information about this one that you want to let us know, we, we would need a commercial property manager to help us rent and manage uh, whichever pieces that, that we decide to do. One of our elders used to do that for us, but um, he's not in a position where he's able to do that right now health-wise, and so we would need somebody new to step into that role. So pray that we know who that is, we know which units to rent, just that God would direct us in all that. Then the other complicating piece is that we're still dealing with the insurance company from storm damage from two years ago on that stretch of the building. Um, we've been through 8,422 negotiations now and appraisals and inspections, um, and we're really hoping that we're close to the end of that process. But if you want to pray for that to be resolved quickly, um, quickly and fairly so that we can get the building, the roof, and the inside up to where it needs to be for us to rent it, that would be great too. So you know, that is like a piece that's holding us up on can we take this next step or not. Those are some practical things going on. Just, I just want you to know that the elders are we're very mindful of this piece of it. We're praying through and asking God, how do you want us to respond to this? The one, one other prayer request I would share for you is that I know that I give Keith all sorts of nicknames all the time, but Campus Keith, you know, like Campus Pastor Keith. Campus Keith has taken on most of this. Um, he's on all the phone calls and all the details. And this is stressful stuff. Like, it's stressful stuff to deal with in your own life. But then when you know that it affects hundreds of people in a church, I said, would you just be praying for Keith? Um, I know the anxiety and the strain of that. And, and you know, we're, we're talking through, Adam and I are talking through every conversation, every decision with him, all the details and stuff. Um, but just pray for him to have a peace that this isn't on him, that first of all, we're all in this together, but also that this is Jesus' church and Jesus builds his church. Um, and then just pray for God to give him what he needs in these conversations, to give him wisdom and discernment and to open the right doors for us. And as we move forward, I, the, the paths that I see for us, um, and we've talked through this some as elders, is maybe God wants us to stay right here, this expression of the church. Here's what's going to have to happen for that to happen. In some way, our, our monthly giving has got to meet our monthly need. Maybe he moves in our hearts, the people that are here right now, the, the type of great grace we see in Acts 4, and, and there's generosity already. Maybe there's generosity on top of generosity. Maybe some of you got a piece of land you want to sell, like Acts 4. Hey, Adam and Keith and I will sit right here, and you can lay it at our feet, all right? <laughs> um, but may, maybe that's what he does. Or maybe he, he blesses several of us in a way that he gives us so many more resources that we're able to give more. Like just that our regular percentage of giving of our own income, our income increases in a way that we give more. I, you know, I see that. Maybe he brings more people. But any of those things is going to, have to be a work of God in our hearts. To just stir up more generosity, more grace, uh, to draw more people. And so you can pray for those sort of things. You know, that's one possibility. And the other possibility is that we create some income streams through renting, um, and, and exactly you know, how we do that with each of the spaces and rework the spaces will be decisions we have to make. So that's, that's a possibility is to rent some spaces. Another possibility, and this is like, I really hope you hear me saying, none of these decisions are made right now, but I do, I want to say stuff, and then you're like, well, he said more than he needed to. You know, another possibility is that we sell this, and we buy something more suitable to our size and budget right now. Or we rent something more suitable to our size and budget. And we don't want this to be an idol where we don't say, hey, maybe that's what God tells us to do. Now, 
We're not saying that's what God's telling us to do. I'm telling you right now, I don't know. Like, I do not know. I've thought about it a lot. I've prayed about it a lot. We've talked about it a lot for the past three and a half months, and I don't know yet. But it, needs, it should always be on the table, right? Like, if, if God shows up and says, hey, set apart Paul and Barnabas, they're leaving. He can move anybody he wants, anywhere he wants. He can move all of us, if he wants to, to a different location. Um, and so, you know, we're talking, do, do we sell and, and buy something else? Do we sell and rent? Do we do something, like, does God have something planned for us that looks entirely different than what we usually see? Something like the book of Acts. You know, Paul's always showing up in all these kind of public places and just starts talking about Jesus. You know, do we sell and we go, is our, is our public gathering at Charlie Daniels Park? And this is just me talking out loud, so don't, like, is it at Charlie Daniels Park? It's like, hey, we're here. Who else is going to be here this morning? And they're going to hear us talking about Jesus. Like, I don't want us to be afraid to dream of stuff like that. I don't want us to think that... I certainly don't want to think that's failure. Because the best thing we see in the book of Acts over and over and over is when you don't have the resources, when you don't have the answers, that's when God shows up. And we're there. And so I'm excited. (laughs) God's going to show up somehow, either in a way where he says, I want you here, they're not driving you out, you're going to be in Corinth for the next 18 months, and he's going to show up and do something. Or he's going to say, I've got a new place for you to be. I've got something different for you. I want this. This can be different in a way that's really good for the gospel. And we want to hear him say that. But I just want you to know that's where we are. That's still what we're wrestling with. And I'd love for you to join us in praying specifically about those things and that we'll see God in it. And um, every time in the book of Acts that they're desperate, their desperation helps them realize how much they need Jesus. I, I hope you've seen that by now. And they're desperate a lot, by the way. I mean, have you noticed, like, every chapter we read, it looks bad, and they're desperate, and they need Jesus. And then this last piece, and Jesus shows up. They don't just need Jesus. They have Jesus. We have Jesus. We are not alone. He made a promise. He promised his spirit and his spirit is here and he's gone before us. He knows where we're headed. And I was thinking about that so much. I was going to read these, but I know we need to wrap up. And so I'm just going to, if you want to read the story later this week where Jesus calms the storm in in Matthew 8 and in the story where uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000 in John 6, both of those are the same kind of situations where they've got a crowd of 5,000 like, we can't do this. Eight months of a man's wages wouldn't give everybody but a bite to eat, and we don't have those kind of resources. Right? They know they need Jesus in that moment. But what they don't realize is they have Jesus. <laughs> like they're rattling off, well, we need eight months of man's wages. Why don't you just send them back into town and let them buy their own food? They're coming with their own solutions instead of turning and saying, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? Listen, we have Jesus. Let's ask, Jesus, what do you want to do about this? Five loaves and two fish is more than enough in the hands of Jesus. What we have is more than enough in the hands of Jesus. Same way when he calms a storm. He's asleep on the boat. The storm comes. They're scared to death. They're desperate. They know they need Jesus. Lord, wake up. Save us. We're going to drown. Don't you care? Do you hear it? They know they need him. They don't realize they have him. Don't you care? You're going to let... No, you have him. He's with you. He sent you out into the lake. He sent you into the storm. He has everything you need. And he says a word. That's how easy it is for him. Hush. Hush, storm. Hush, disciples. 
Hush with all your fear and your worry and your doubt. You have me. And so, yeah, we need Jesus. We have Jesus. And it's the best place we can be. Because I thought about this and I want to write it down. There's the good things of God. You know, all these good things he gives us. Just like this building. And then there's the goodness of God. Like the goodness of who he actually is. He himself. And one of the things I've learned in my life. And maybe you've learned this in your life. Or maybe you're going to. Maybe we're learning this as a church right now. Is that usually I'm not ready. My heart isn't ready to receive the good things of God. Until I've learned to really love and trust the goodness of God. And what I mean is, I made that joke about rainbows and roses earlier. Like, it's all rainbows and roses. It's like, okay, I don't really need to depend on God today. I don't need to look to God. I don't need to rely on God. Everything's good. I'm fine. Here we go. And and the good things of God become a distraction that pulls my heart away from God. And it's only when God strips that stuff away. All right, fine. Rainbow and roses don't do it. Here's the storm. Here's the dark black hole. Here's the pit. And then you're down there and it's like, God, I need you. I need you. And then you find that the goodness of God is still there. That God himself is good, not just his things, not just the stuff he gives, but God is good and God is enough. And your heart starts to grow strong on the goodness of God. And then eventually he reaches down. He's like, I've been here with you the whole time and I'm going to lift you out of this pit now. And now that you know my goodness a little more, you're ready to receive my good things a little bit more. Like there's actually room in your heart to receive them without it distracting you from me. And so this, this is always true no matter what. The goodness of God is here. He is with us. And the reason why is exactly what we saw when Jesus says, hey, you're not alone. I'm with you. Do you know why he can say that? Because he was alone. He went to the cross alone. They all abandoned him. They fled. And then he bore the wrath of God alone. And then the father turned away from the son. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was alone. So that you never have to be alone. He was alone. So that we will never be alone. He is with us. He has this. He has us. I don't have all the answers, but he does, and he goes before us, and he's already at work. And so we're going to pray. We're going to ask him to show us and lead us and do the type of things that only he can do, and we're going to worship him, and we're going to keep doing that no matter what. (laughs) So will you pray with me right now? Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for Jesus, that this is his church These are his promises, and it is his work. We trust you with that. Help us to trust you more. Help us to look long at the gospel, at the cross, the death, and at the empty tomb, the resurrection. And may our minds and our hearts be shaped by the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done and everything that means for us as we follow him and for your church. Father, please show us, lead us, help us. Help us to be whatever it is you want from your church and nothing else. 
Help us to be everything you want from your church by the power of your spirit. Father, I pray for a move and work of your spirit that the only explanation would be that you are doing something supernatural and gracious by the power of your spirit. Sweep us up in that. Lead us into that. Show us what that is. Do it by your grace, Father, because you're our only hope. And do it for your glory because you are worth it and you deserve it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.